Trailhead DX. Um, we're just wrapping up, right? So it's Thursday, about 4.15, and uh, we just experienced two days of, of uh, the official pronunciation is Trailhead DX, even though that's not how it's spelled. But <laughs> I'm not doing it. I'm just yeah. going to call it TDX. Yeah, TDX. Yeah, uh, I've heard that's the that's the official short name now. I think or the non-official short name. Um. So yeah. So I'm uh, actually. I got a. You, you you guys may have noticed that this is uh, this is John de Santiago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So undergone a voice reeducation live from San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no. So I'm I'm joined by the uh, world famous MMA fighter and uh, Salesforce uh, consultant, programmer, developer, and and speaker and, and lecturer uh, Chuck Liddell. How how do I fit it all in with my <laughs> MMA know. schedule? You are pretty amazing. Good to be here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so thanks for joining me. So John John could not make it. Um, I think he just didn't want to actually, but whatever. It's uh, his loss, really. Yeah. So uh, so yeah. So you're joining me just so we can kind of wrap up this uh, this couple of couple of days here and and talk about what we what we found interesting. It's and, been super whatever. interesting. So I mean, overall, like I, I really like this event. It's it's in Moscone West. So it kind of feels like Dreamforce in a way. Um, and in fact, the, the only Dreamforce I've been to, I think I pretty much stayed in Moscone West. I, don't, I think that's because, I, that's where they have the developer stuff, I guess. Um, yeah. And the couple of times where I did venture to one of the nearby hotels for a, another session, it was it was a bad experience. So I just like I'm just gonna stay at Moscone West because I tend to ha- seem to have better luck doing that. It's what I imagine the <laughs> Dreamforce of yesteryear looked like back in the day, right? Like early days Dreamforce when it was small. So, were you in the Meet the Developers? Okay, someone um, meant, someone got up and asked a question, or they made a comment and said um, they really liked this event, and you know, would it make more sense to just kind of wind down all the developer stuff at Dreamforce and move it all to Trailhead DX? And uh, I think it was Shauna Wolverton made the comment. She's like, you know what? At the second Dreamforce, it, there was it was also small like this. Just keep that in mind. <laughs> yeah, but this could become a thing exactly. of its own. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, they, I, I heard 6,000 people. I I don't know who I heard that I from. I thought Parker said 20 in the keynote. No way. That's what I think he said that we had 20 attendees or registries. Okay, so that's interesting. I was trying, and I, when I heard the six, I was, I actually immediately kind of compared it to WWDC, which I've never been to, but it's yeah. always capped at, I think, 5,000. Hmm. And I thought, well, this must be what WWDC feels like, which it feels fine. I mean, you know, their hotels are available, they're not that expensive. You can, find restaurants to go to and you can pop in any bar or whatever there's availability you you see i mean you keep running into i mean i don't know how many times i ran into you but at dreamforce i'm not running to you once no right i I bumped into a bunch of people that i i know and i like to see at these kinds of conferences and instead of like seeking them out they're all in the hall you know it's because everyone's in the same space right yeah so that was really nice yeah i like the size a lot way better than dreamforce and it was still i mean honestly for me it was a little on the on the big side but it was i mean so much better just dreamforce in terms of again like being able to get around and and actually running into people you know dreamforce it's it's almost like you know when you're in a big city like new york i feel like new york's one of these cities or any any city where there's like just so many people on the street walking around there are so many people that you don't you don't actually talk to anyone because that's weird because there's so many people whereas you know if you're in an area where you don't bump into someone constantly when you do see someone you're like oh hey how's it going you know you, you just saw a person that's kind of a an event you know <laughs> yeah I, I expected to go to a lot more sessions but it ends up being sort of a, a hallway conference for me right you just kept bumping into people over and over and then they introduce you to someone new i met so many people through people because i'd be chatting with somebody that i i like a lot or i'm trying to get to know better and they go oh, do you know so and so and it's just, you know, just a chain of introductions that was possible because everyone's in the same space kind of bumping into each other uh so i really like that a lot yeah um and i i 
I was smart to hang out with you and like, <laughs> um, I guess Peter and some other people who you guys know so many more people than I do. So yeah, so it was uh, Peter Chittum and you and me and uh, Dan Peters. Yes, and uh, we were kind of a core quad group, and then we kind of <laughs> people just bolted on at various points and kind of went a little constellation going around. Yeah, and I'm you know I may or may not have snuck into some in- invitation only events. And we, we both got <laughs> snuck into a few things, which uh, was really great. Yeah. We were able to ask the hard questions, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so it's I guess um, so I got I got in Tuesday night. Did you go to the? Um, I, I went to the equality event, which is which was interesting. Did you go to that? No, I didn't get in early enough for it. What was that like? Well, it was it was interesting. Um, it started out with about an hour like thing in a meeting room um, where they had like four or five people. It was like a panel, and they'd all all talked about and people from with like from different backgrounds with like different um, in different like Ohana groups or whatever Salesforce called them. So like. You know, there's like, um, there's one for African Americans, one for, you know, disabled people, one for, you know, lesbian, gay, LGBT plus, um, all that stuff. And so, uh, um, and they just kind of talked about their experience, um, how, how they kind of got involved in, in the group or whatever. And it's, you know, I mean, honestly, this, you, this, you get a lot of this stuff from Salesforce, you know, pretty much at every event, at every time they have a meeting, whatever, they're going to spend a good amount of time talking about, well, not only the equality stuff to do, but like their their philanthropy and all that stuff, and and it kind of it kind of um, gets a little old sometimes. But for me, um, and of course, I'm you know the straight white guy, right? So, but this is being a straight white guy at this thing. It was kind of interesting because sitting there for an hour listening to these people talk, um, I got a little bit of a more, I think just a little bit more perspective on uh, on what it might be like to be um, you know different than most other people. I don't really experience that. And, you know, I'm thinking of all, I'm like listening to these people's stories. I'm like, you know, they're in, in some way or another, they're different than like 90 or like 99.9% of, of other people. And they're having to, and that creates challenges in life in, in different ways, depending on, you know, how you're different or whatever. Um, and just kind of them talking about that and also just sharing their experiences on what Salesforce is doing to try to um, make sure that these people are not being, uh, they're being given the same opportunities that everyone else is. Um, it was, I don't know, it was, I just, a little bit more personal perspective, I think I got. By, by and, and they're able to share that in a way that you could understand. Like it, it made sense to you, and you started to connect with it a little bit and wrap your brain around what that experience was like for them. Exactly, and and that's really, I mean, the reason I I went is just because I don't have you know I don't have those problems, or at least not anything in like in the way that they do. Um, so it was just it was just I just went to learn and just and just to hang out, you know. Um, so yeah, it was it was interesting. But that's what I did the first time. And there was what uh, so something before that too. It was um this is sort of pre stuff going on yeah. Tuesday. What was that? Um or some kind of get together. I can't remember now. Anyway. Uh so that was you know, that was Tuesday night. But um what about, you know, you want to get into some like, sessions that you thought were interesting or Yeah. I mean, so let's talk about the opening okay. of TDX. Uh keynote, how'd that go? Parker opened it up, a couple other people. Thoughts and impressions. One thing that I loved was that we had a bunch of GDS folks in the Trailhead channel, kind of live streaming with each other. Like, yeah. "Hey, is what I think of what's going on." Yeah, that was that was. I was trying not to laugh out loud at certain points <laughs> during that. Um, that was pretty good. Um, they, you know, there was kind of a mix of uh, again, kind of standard Salesforce stuff that they usually open open events with, um, and 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 Parker. But then they got into some live demos, which were. Um, which were pretty cool. So the the Einstein, they did some Einstein demos where you know they're actually hitting some kind of Einstein API and and showing how like um, 
you can, you know, like what do they do? It's like sentiment analysis, um, so, like the suggestion mm-hmm. thing. There's an image recognition thing with uh, Black Diamond gear. Like here's a photo of your gear and you know, I'm going to tell you what you have and we can talk about what you need yeah. kind of stuff. And so those were cool. Um, it would have been better. It seemed a little canned though because you can, I mean, you can see these demo people, they're basically just, you know, cutting and pasting in the text that they're, and it's obviously been, it's very rehearsed and they they know exactly what Einstein or whatever is going to return because they've, they've, they've got that same database and they're, you know, they've tested these things. So, I mean, my thought was safe. Yeah, it was very safe. I mean, and you know, I I don't blame them if I was doing the demo, I'd want something safe too, but it would have been, I think much more effective if they would have asked the audience, like, you know, give us an idea. Like what should, what should we ask Einstein? Yeah. um, I think people realize that, okay, if you're going to solicit audience suggestions, like maybe it's not gonna do a great job, but if you believe in what you built, like (laughs) you're probably curious too, to see if it can handle sort of free form stuff. Yeah. But, um, but I mean, I thought it was pretty interesting. I, I thought Leah did a great job, right? Showing off some of that DX stuff. Um, and I mean, we've been in the DX pilot playing with it and we love it. Like, yeah. It's totally been transformative for how we do all our workflow stuff. Uh, I thought she did a good job kind of conveying the value of it and getting deep into it, right? So one of my takeaways was like, we're, we're looking at a console for a long time. And this is a keynote, right? Like we were really like, here's the command line and here's a bunch of stuff I'm going to do on it. And here's what it looks like. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is actually going to be kind of technical. Right. And, and when you go to do a, a developer keynote, if, if you don't see a terminal, then you kind of question whether it's a developer keynote, right? Yeah. So, and there's a lot of terminal, there's a lot of, you know, uh, command line stuff going on. I did think it was interesting that they were, they were right in the middle of talking about, you know, that the source code is, is now source of truth, source of truth. Yeah. And, and, and then of course they, in order to, Make a source code change. They actually they then immediately go into Salesforce and <laughs> and change something in Salesforce, and they show you how you, then you can then pull that metadata wow. down. So it's like, well, what's the source of truth here? Um, and, I, and I I was actually was not the person who made that kind of th- that uh, I would not say accusation, but that observation. Um, but I kind of give them a pass because I still I see it as a positive. Well, I, I do too because um, I, I still see that you know what's what's on your what's on the disk or what's what's on in your in your repository is. The source of truth. It just turns out that for many, for many ways you'll want you want to change your metadata. Salesforce happens to be an excellent metadata editing tool. That, and that's kind of the way I see it. Like, do you want to really add a add a field by editing metadata? No, yeah. you go to Salesforce. You add the field. I, I'm a developer. I'm working on something. Some of it's going to be code. Some of it's going to be visual for me. I'm going to drag stuff, click it, move it around. Like if I'm building a, an interface and I'm arranging stuff visually, I want to do that visually and then grab it and push it into my branch. Exactly. So. And I thought, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's great. I mean, there's a, and just Salesforce DX in general. Um, I learned a little bit more about it um, this week. Um, it's, it's really, I mean, the interesting thing about it is a lot of the stuff that you can do with it, for, like that, that demo where you change things, you pull the metadata down. And I mean, this stuff that I've already been doing anyway. And, and so it's, I mean, it's great that, that Salesforce is, is now doing this because um, there's a, there's things that their tooling does that it's, um, at least it's going to be a lot faster than the tooling I have that does it. Because for, for example, like if I was to do that demo where I change something in Salesforce and then I pull the metadata down, like I'm just using the metadata API and it's pulling everything down and yeah. it takes, it doesn't take two seconds. It takes like two minutes. Yeah. If you a couple hundred objects, a couple thousand files. Exactly. Um, so, so they've got something going on that it's, it's tracking like in the org, something is tracking uh, your changes and apparently I think when you do that whatever the call is to get what's changed it's a more much more efficient process at that point the DX stuff is a godsend honestly right it, it just uh, the ability to have source control be the source of truth and the ability to just mutate an environment easily 
right? No more pain with destructive changes. No more, I can't push a very different look into an org because it's already structured a certain way, right? You just smash stuff, put it back together. The the scratch orgs all have allowed us to do some really cool stuff, right? Like we'll so we do a lot of projects on a scrum model, right? Where we have like a bunch of stories about a project and we'll do um like one scratch org per story, right? We'll branch a story, we'll have a scratch org for it, we'll demo the scratch org, do the work in the scratch org and then destroy it and merge it back into the trunk. And it's it's so intuitive which is the opposite of how I would ever describe Salesforce development in the past. Yeah. Well, and and really, I mean, that, that whole idea of spinning something up, testing something, and then it gets destroyed. I mean, that's the way the cloud computing is supposed to work. Yeah. And that's, you know, kind of one of my, you know, some, you know, criticisms with Salesforce is sometimes they don't seem like a cloud computing company. And that was one of the ways it's like sandboxes are so heavyweight. You know, there should be some way just to spin up a quick instance, do something, and then it goes away. That's, yeah. that's just how we, you know, things are done nowadays. I like a sandbox. Oh, we'll see you next week. Well, it'll be ready in five days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's that's a big improvement. And I, I really think when you combine the packaging two stuff, so there's this thing called packaging two, like which is, is the number two. Like phenomenal. It's a huge improvement, right? Um, it, it's uh, there's there's still work to be done, I think. Um, and I, I can, I, I'm weakened to get into like what it is and what it isn't. But yeah, it, when you combine DX with packaging, the the, the packaging improvements, which are probably going to be another year before we see those uh, GA, I would imagine. But it's a huge improvement, and it's it's not just for like ISVs. And but if you are an ISV and you're doing managed packages, I mean, you we all know what the pains and challenges with those are. This is going to solve a lot of those, um, and just gives you so much more flexibility, and it's going to be better for customers. But all you know, if, even if you're not an ISV, if you're um, you know, a corporate what they <clears throat> what does Salesforce call them a corporate developer. So interesting, Salesforce really identified their different audiences pretty well. So they've got you know there's ISVs. There's corporate developers, and then there's basically like you know cons- partners or consultants that that do, and they they really I think have thought about and, and packaging is a great example of this. I think they really just let everything fall away, and they they said uh, like forget about what we've got, how packaging works right now. Let's look at what people are asking for, what they're complaining about, and 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 think about how packaging could work with without even worrying about what the current constraints are. Okay, and I think they came up with all these ideas, and then they. And then at some point they had to say, okay, we built, we now have this an idea of a perfect system, but how do we, how do we now integrate what we've got currently because there has to be an upgrade path. And so that probably puts some constraints on things, but that you can tell they really have taken all this. This is a great example. They took everyone's opinions and feedback and they, it looks like they've come up with a pretty damn good solution. Yeah. I mean, it's somebody let them loose, right? Somebody said, Hey, this is important to us now go figure out how to do this best and here's some resources to actually accomplish it. You know, I, I was, I mean, that, that's what I'm curious about is why now? How did this happen now? I think a tipping point. I mean, just I, en- I, enough I, important big ISPs, yeah, important big so customers. I, I've been asking people, you know, why? Why are we doing, why? this is all great stuff, but why 2017? Like, why is this happening now? And the answer has been because customers at scale are hitting the boundaries and getting really frustrated and just complaining. It's not just, hey, someone had a good idea, let's make it this better. There's real money at stake now, and that's driving it, right? Which yeah. is great, because it's aligned finally with the developers. And they're saying, hey, you know, these are real problems that cost big companies lots of money. We're going to solve them, and the developers benefit. And it's a, you know, a lot of like lip service to, hey, we're going to make this better for developers. But you're solving real problems for big companies. And that's going to help Salesforce, help those companies, which helps us. Yeah, I mean, I think the reality is, is they just... They're definitely hitting that ceiling with the way that I mean, really, with the way that everything works. It's just a question of priority for them because I mean, think about how many different teams at Salesforce that this packaging thing touches. 
it's the it's the package people it's the app exchange people it's um it's probably i mean i'm sure it touches like you know the apex and the metadata it, it, these are all different teams i mean even i mean i've learned more about the metadata system i mean you've got the api which has a team that's in charge of that but then each different like type of metadata there's different teams that are responsible yeah for little, kind little of, silos and verticals yeah. and i think there's just some interface they have to implement it's like up to them to go implement their metadata well and obviously some teams do it better than others you know but it's it's just yeah it's it's obviously like some high high level they got yeah, so they finally got to, some sort of executive sponsorship here where someone said listen let's let's start re-envisioning some stuff that's been stuck for a long time and make it a lot better yeah and then you get dx you get packaging 2.0 and then I think that's, that's kind of a virtuous cycle, right? It starts to have some exponential growth because you start to attract the kind of people that are interested in that sort of infrastructure improvement. Uh, they, they come work for Salesforce or they engage and they're in the community and then you start to have all these great improvements that happen and then they sort of cascade and more and more happen. So, I, I mean, I'm feeling pretty bullish right now yeah, about I'm, what development looks like on the platform. I am too. Um Maybe that's just a little, you know, conference afterglow, but yeah, exactly. I mean, we're 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 high on the Kool Aid right now. I guess <laughs> <laughs> I try not to drink too much. Um, well, okay. So speaking of package packaging so, too, yeah, um, you want to get into packaging too yeah, a little like, bit more about what and, it is. And this is, you know, I feel like this is something that's hard to explain. But um, Scott Wells did a pretty good job summing it up today. He did. I mean, I feel like we should like read his, read uh, his I, message. I've got it pulled up here. Um, just sort of paraphrasing what he said. Uh, but one of the big things is they, they've decoupled namespaces. So you can have a namespace that's sort of like your playground where you build stuff. That's sort of your domain. Um, but packages are kind of separate from that, right? You can have packages that you build that are in your namespace or not, up to you. But it's not one namespace per package, very strictly coupled. So that was really interesting. Because yeah. you basically have composition of packages now. Yes. You're calling them bundles kind yeah. of casually. Mm-hmm. So you can like? install one package that's actually a bundle of that can, t- can, can you know, contain several packages. Yeah. So, and you can declare dependencies, right? You can say, hey, this is my, my schema package and I'm just going to have schema information in it and then I'm going to do some sort of logical extensions and for certain customers or certain scenarios, I might mix and match the higher level packages that depend on the base package. And you say, I want to install the higher level package. It's going to say, okay, here's the bundle. Here are the ones that it depends on and they, they're kind of a kit and they all go in at the same time. So you can really sort of have some mutability to your packages and make them more granular in a way you never could before. Right, and it just gives you some better, you know, engineering uh, t- tools, basically, to to build your apps in a just in a, in a you know more correctly engineered way. That's uh, just going to make everyone's life a little bit easier. Yeah, there there's some limits. So, like for example, on the dependencies, this is one of the questions I asked: is you know how do they handle transitive dependencies? So, like I might have a package A that contains B and C, and I can declare that package A contains B and C, so that the system knows and make sure they're there and all that stuff. But what a package C Depends on something, <clears throat> and so it it doesn't at least it, the way they answer me. It's basically it doesn't. It's not going to traverse that dependency graph and and do all that. Yeah, so. I got the impression it wouldn't be dynamic. Like you wouldn't start with one package and it would spider and find all the ones it needed. It'd be rather that you would build a bundle yourself. Like you'd have variants of bundles that were sort of pre-composed sets of things. Yeah, but that at the package level is pretty easy to define those dependencies. So. So it's it's not yet like um like an npm package, right? right. It's you know right. there's you know you you don't you're not gonna be able to do npm install and it, it just which you know of course that's a JavaScript thing you you know you want to install some little library do npm install on it and you know downloads like you know fourteen hundred different packages because <laughs> that's the dependency graph that's the way JavaScript works. You know, I, I mean I must prefer it to be a little more curated than that, right? I agree. Um, I also asked them speaking of npm about uh, is there going to be like. A rep- uh, like a public repository where people can put up all their you know, open source packages. 
so that we can start composing our apps of, of all these, you know, well-known, well-built packages that the community contributes to. Um, and they basically said they like the idea, they've talked about it, but it's they can't say that it's currently being planned. So I asked similar questions of the App Exchange team um, while I was out here this week, kind of inspired by your question yesterday about that. Yep. Let me say this morning. I don't know. Um, I think it was this And it was just talking about, you know, there are a lot of people building interesting things out there. You know, packages, lightning components. We talked about, uh, is it Strike.io, the epiphany collection of lightning components for people to use. A lot of people out there building interesting things. And uh, it's not really a centralized way for them to get their, their hands on it, right? So not just Apex code, but just anything kind of NPM style. Like, here's a set of things you might want to work with. Uh, and there's there's interest on that side too, right? On the business side. It's just, traditionally, it's been about, you know, I need to sign a contract with Salesforce so we can sell something. I'm going to sell something, they're going to sell it with me. And it wasn't really thought that there was going to be much of a, you know, an ecosystem around people just sharing and collaborating. So they didn't think like about free and about just community supported stuff. Yeah, which is, I think, a, a little bit of a missed opportunity. If you just um, consider that, like, you know, look at, look at Apex, there's, we don't have an NPM for Apex or a, you know, a Maven central for Apex. It's, um, it's manual and very error prone if you need to go get um, some code from someone's public Git, GitHub repo that's got some things you need. It's, I mean, what are you doing? Copying and pasting them in, yeah. or it's just you kind of have to manually include them. And now you now so now you've just you've essentially forked their repo. So and there's no you have no metadata that says, oh yeah, this code is from this repo. Um, let me do an update on that and get the latest that no, it's that's all manual now at this point. So there's community appetite for that, right? The people out outside the fold are interested in it. I think that there's interest building inside Salesforce for it, right? And I'm hoping that this is kind of back to that virtuous cycle stuff that you know you get DX, you get packaging 2.0, you get all this energy going into sort of these communal tools, and that naturally as sort of a knock-on effect, you're going to open up the opportunity for more collaboration. And then that stuff like, hey, let's have an NPM style something or other, uh, you know, becomes roadmap. It becomes something people are talking about and designing together, and then gets put on some sort of you know. Queue uh, of things to get built. Yeah, and and they made it sound like you know they they're having these conversations. It's just you can only do so much in and and there's just that's fair. Just you have finite resources. You exactly. Prioritize. And, and and I don't even I think even if you had all the resources in the world, there's only so much you want to change at once. And this is a pretty big change because, and I think the most challenging aspect is um, providing a path for all the existing packages out there, the managed packages. One one feature we didn't really talk about yet. I don't think we did. That, that is really cool. Is um, you know, the challenge of managed packages is, you know, once you install one managed package, um, you or you set it to basically a release version, right? So many things just become basically locked down. Mm -hmm. You can't change them anymore. Now, that's they have relaxed that um, over time a little bit. You know, there's some things you can change. You can deprecate things and over time maybe remove them. But it's it's still it's cumbersome and it's not very flexible. Well, now they have, you know, several different models that you can you can choose from. So you can actually uh, one of them is is the the way it works today. So if that model works for some of your packages, um, then you can stick with that. <clears throat> um, there's one of the other models is um, the developer can push updates to basically anything, but the but the install org um, you can basically have it set to where they can't change anything. So like a page layout or any of those kind of things, they can they get them, but they can't change them at all, which gives the developer the ability to push push updates into their org or the customer can install updates in their org with a package, and they're not going to lose any of their customizations because they couldn't customize it. 
Right. Yeah, I think there were um, maybe three different flavors, maybe four flavors that were kind of five. shown, like different permission sets. And then the last one was like, "Oh, and roll your own." Yeah, and I don't, and I don't, I don't know if they went into that much, but I, that's I'm. It's interesting. I don't know if that's like a you know literally like a metadata item by item, like what you what which model you want to pick, or if you implement some interface and it you get like called back and you say, "Hey, should we let?" someone edit this or not you have yeah you it's an probably answer. just a package configuration but then when you do bundles of packages how does that work so, i wondered that too yeah. Uh, yeah what which is it the is it the parent most package that that yeah sets the model yeah so I, the good news is that the pilot for it's opening up right away yeah that and like in the next couple of days you can pilot packaging 2.0 with the caveat is that they're gonna throw it all out like they you can't do anything for real with it just right. just have a play with it and you know, next release they're going to toss it and then do like a beta or something, which is kind of tough. It's like, well, if you can't do anything real with it, then you're, it's not a, it's not. Uh, you want people to do real stuff with it because that's when you, that's when you find the edge cases, right? Yeah, and the, the lurk in the corners, and so I don't know. I guess you, you, you can, you can, you can put your real stuff in there. Just don't expect it to go anywhere. It's going, right, it's right, going yeah. to get, yeah, real. do like a, a dry run. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, yeah, I think that's fine. That they. It's good of them to reserve the right to, to like trash it, right? Because then they have flexibility if they made a big mistake or they want to change the model. Did you you were in the packaging too? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, did you um, did you catch that uh, part where they were talking about how you can do like concurrent feature development in two different packages that are I think in the like within maybe in the within the same work they kept saying workspace and I'm not even sure I don't know what exactly what workspace yeah. is. is that a DX term? Okay. Yeah. So they're saying that um, you could have. Uh, packages that were that shared a namespace, but they weren't dependent on each other. So w- the thing about the namespacing was that you could have publicly declared Apex now that was callable from your other packages in your namespace that was still hidden from the outside world. But you didn't have to make things global for other packages to talk to them if they were in your namespace. So you could work on multi. You could have like your company and build a bunch of stuff that kind of can talk to each other, but maybe it doesn't have to. Um, and then. It, they don't have to be dependent on each other, but they could talk to each other if you wanted them to because they share a namespace. Okay, that was what that was about. And they don't have to be global. It's, they don't have to be global because yeah. you get kind of your own mini global that's like your your turf, yeah. your neighborhood that's yours. So I guess it, I guess um, things that aren't global will still not be accessible or or viewable by. Um, code in the installed org, like client code, right? Client code and other namespaces, okay. right? This, this is the drawing. This is like saying that a namespace is now a neighborhood. It's not a house. It's a neighborhood. Your packages are houses, yeah. and no one else can like come into your neighborhood, but all the houses can hang out. Yeah, and I, I asked them because I feel like they've kind of changed the semantics of what of what a package is, and kind of asked them about that to, to just describe that a little bit more. Yeah. But I think it's it's I don't know it's it's hard to describe it at that. At that, at kind of an ethereal level, I guess it's you know they these guys, these guys are are engineers, so I think they you know they they can tell you the specifics, but it's it's hard to give uh, I could give an overall. That's why it's hard. To, I feel like it's harder to describe this whole packaging thing. Yeah. Well, um, this is kind of interesting, right? And, and and you'll see the community does with it. But one of the things that I am curious about is if you are going to end up because a, a namespace becomes this like slightly larger concept that enca- encapsulates other things. Are you going to end up with sort of community namespaces? Like certain namespaces are, are contributed to by multiple packages that are actually you know built by different people, and it's like a shared community space. I, I wouldn't be surprised if stuff like that started to crop it up. Sounded to me like when you create a namespace, it's linked to your what's it called? A, your dev hub. hub. Yeah, your hub, your dev hub, and then individual uh, scratch orgs and packages off of that hub share it. 
Yeah. So I don't so, think you'd want to be giving access to random other people, you know, to your... Well, uh, if, if it's like an open source type project or something, right? And you share a hub and then people will have their own packages and their own orgs kind of, right? Different branches or something. Yeah. No, that's that's true. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we'll see. Yeah. Very speculative right now. It's, I mean, uh, it, th- this was one of those just pain points that I'm really glad they're addressing. Yeah. They're showing up. Yeah. And I was even wondering, like, could, since packages seem to be kind of more lightweight, considering that like they don't have to have their own dedicated namespace and there's all these different um, kind of visibility and flexibility options, like, can you use, can you use these packages kind of like um, as a way to or- just organize your code better? So let's say I'm a corporate, I'm the, I'm the corporate developer, Absolutely. Right? And I just, I do work for my own company's org. We don't, package things we don't we're not an isv we're not installing the stuff into some other ones or we just we work in sandboxes and we deploy to production that's all we do right um how do i use this new packaging model i mean to just again have better engineered code code that's where i've i've got different modules that I can control the dependency graph. Yeah, I can make sure the, depend- the arrows are all flowing in the right direction in, in the dependency graph. Right? We talked about layering, right? Like schema and logic and stuff. You could kind of break that out into the bundles. But then also they should show today in Terminal that you could spin up packages from Terminal, right? That you weren't going to be building packages with UI anymore. You could just throw together packages and create a lot of stuff just from the command line, which totally makes packages a, a way more mutable and ephemeral thing. Yeah, and it's it's funny because when I saw them do that, I because I was really trying to stretch this metaphor too far. I think I'm thinking, you know, can they use this like Java packages or like C sharp? No, I was thinking the same thing, and I bet similar. The only caveats probably you would have to move to essentially a managed structure internally, right? Yeah. It's your company, not giving it to anyone else, but it's a managed package. Yeah, which you always talk about anyways, which is don't mutate stuff in production. Right. So, I mean, it's not maybe not a bad idea to have your IT team building a managed package that you guys deploy internally. And, and speaking of that, I heard in a lot of sessions, including the Meet the Developers, which was really, they're not, I mean, I don't say they're not developers, but they're really executives who are run developer organizations, or de, you know, engineering organizations. Um, even in that meeting, they talked about, um, you know, don't do anything in production. You know, that's really the, that, that's, that's, and I've been, I mean, that's kind of the model that I've, um, been coaching my clients on for really, really years now is is really don't do anything in production. I mean, even even and this is where some people it's going too far. But even things like editing profiles, and and the reason is because I mean, there's things that depend on profiles, especially if you deal with you know, communities or there's there's areas where like you have to have things reference uh, certain metadata references profiles, right? That means that if you want to have a complete build. If you don't, if you're not including profiles in that, then you're you have missing metadata or you have missing things. So unless those are unless those profiles are already in production, then your deployment's going to fail, right? And if and when you do QA, don't you want it to be doing QA with the exact profiles that are going to be in production? So there's I can you know I've got reasons why, but yeah. I'm just very glad to hear from kind of developer advocate on up to these executives, it, kind of the message is, is you need to stop doing things in production. The vision's there, and D, yeah. DX enables it. And scratch works aren't just for developers, right? Let's say you have some admins that are going to do some config. You could skip, spin them up a scratch org and say, here's your branch, go wild, and then we'll test it in the scratch org or somewhere else in an integration org, and then we'll, we'll merge it back in. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So... Yeah, and that's um, that's something that's still a really big challenge that I have is in this kind of model of, of how I like to... Uh, run Salesforce development projects. One of the challenges is, is the people who are like the admin types that are helping doing configuration and things like, do I have them work in my sandbox? Which is kind of tricky because let's say, for example, 
Um, I, um, I'm working on a certain feature, but uh, a bug, a, a nah. hot bug comes in is, for production. You is the I'm Oprah saying? Winfrey model going forward? You get a scratch work, oh, and you yeah, get a yeah, scratch yeah. work, and you get a scratch work. Scratch works for every yeah, yeah. reason. Well, let me so let me finish <laughs> describing this challenge. So, what it is like? Let's say um, a, a bug comes in. That's uh, it's. I got to do a hot fix quickly. Well, the first thing I have to do is I have to set my org back to. I have to check out master right and set my org back to what's in production because that's I want to do the bug fix on that branch. So I check out master and I immediately deploy that to my sandbox so that my sandbox reflects exactly the, the source code of master. I just wiped out whatever changes this admin person was helping me can do in my my sandbox. So it's like, if I'm going to have them make the changes in my sandbox, then I have to say, okay, you're safe to go now. Do them and try to do them yeah. fast and let me know when you're done. That's or I can give them their own sandbox, um, which you know is also tricky because not only do I have to pull the, their changes they made from their sandbox, but then I also have to... I basically have to rebase their sandbox on the on the latest of the, on, of the of the dev branch. So I've got to push that back to their sandbox, and that's got to be coordinated because if not, then they could be they could have continued to do work, and I'm going to kind of blow that away, right? Yeah. So it's it's this is a not a solved problem. And do you think scratch works? Is that hundred percent? Okay, you're, you're never going to do that again. Awesome. We that's we can't go back. Yeah. Right. We've been helping out other teams that aren't using the DX pilot, and it is painful yeah. to work with the old yeah. model still yeah. like we we will not look back that's awesome i'm really excited about that yeah <laughs> it's 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 there's a one-to-one between a branch or a commit and an org yeah and it just completely frees you to have a real workflow yeah it's night and day yeah that's great okay i wanted to get to some other stuff so that's packaging 2.0 yep um a couple other things that were that were really interesting uh there are a lot of event conversations platform events yep. and what you could do with them where they were going um, which was super interesting. And then I want to talk a little about the Apex Metadata API. Uh was really great. Well, you know, events first. What what did you think about some of the event stuff? I didn't do I didn't go to any of the event stuff, and I probably should have because I know very little about platform events. So okay. if you want to talk about what was new or what you think about that, that's fine. Yeah. So I mean, in a nutshell, there, there's a vision of we've got all these kind of disconnected bits, right? The the cloudlets, as uh, Peter Chittum calls them. <laughs> um uh, sort of like the I'm sorry, he didn't call them that. Uh, someone else did. And um, there's always been kind of a a bus missing, right? A way to exchange information between all these different systems. And then even from Salesforce elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Jay Hurst is the the product owner on this, and he's been pushing this for a while. Um, The platform events are a way to to do real pub-sub on the platform. And it's infrastructure first, right? We're, We're going to define what an event looks like, and then how do we emit it, and how do we consume it? And that's kind of been talked about a bit. There was some Dreamforce sessions on it. And then they kind of went big on it at TDX, saying, okay, so everyone kind of understands what events are. And, and they, they built it a little bit based off the old object model, right? This underscore underscore E is an event. It has a, a schema, custom field, standard field kind of stuff. It's so very similar to the way you define a custom object. And what are you defining the shape of the event? You're defining the shape of the event. Okay. So you know, though it has seven fields, a couple of them are text, there's a number involved. And then there's some standard fields, like a, a unique ID for the event. You can use the IDs to replay events in a stream. So you can you know grab from the latest event and from there forward, or you can rewind some uh, kind of stuff. But then this becomes the the beginning of a bunch of other stuff. So they're going to bolt all this other stuff on top of it. For example, um, they're going to allow you to subscribe to like standard object changes, like as, as if a trigger. Like previously with triggers and stuff, you say, "Hey, I want to listen to account on create mm-hmm. or just on update or whatever." So you can do that with events. You're going to say, "Hey, I want my org to emit a platform event." Whenever an account's updated or changed or whatever, okay. and then they're going to extend that in more and more ways, and more and more stuff's going to start feeding into the stream. You can imagine where this goes from here, right? Is the more and more stuff that you can pub onto this bus, 
the more interesting things you can do consuming it. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that you can, you should be able to, uh, in, in like Apex, you know, create an event and put it on the bus, right? Yep. And then probably um, you could have things that are coming in via API, external API that, you know, that also would create an event. So it's. So you've got the bus yeah. and then you have publishers and consumers on both sides, internal and external. So you have stuff inside the cloud, inside the Salesforce ecosystem, creating events, consuming events, you know, create it from Apex, consume it from Apex, create it from native, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you've got API access. All the demos have been with JavaScript, right? They're using JavaScript, they use the streaming API, um, and they, they grab an event stream and they're they're showing you events in a browser session right but you can do it with the javascript api and the streaming api you can do it with other stuff um so it's really like for the first time sort of enterprise grade messaging on the platform and then you know extrapolate this out a little bit down the road and you can see that you could so you could build some pretty powerful stuff i think that the, that the plan here is to sort of unify the the diaspora of the ecosystem, right? I've got my marketing cloud and commerce cloud and sales cloud and all the stuff that we keep buying every year mm-hmm. uh, as Salesforce, and I want them to talk to each other. Well, if there's a bus and there are all these events that, that we're emitting, and then we have all our third-party people that are building stuff, and there's like this one happy bus where everything is getting you know sent back and forth, then you can start to make sense of all that chaos and do real meaningful connections between things. So you think <clears throat> you think Salesforce will be using platform events internally to help? Unify these clouds because let's face it, right now it's there's there's not a platform. There's a lot of platforms. Yeah, right? yeah. But if you start thinking of of each of those as sort of a microservice on the same bus, yeah. then you can start to imagine a world where they there's actually some some crosstalk. Yeah, and things can play together nicely. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of I mean, uh, and uh, obviously messaging is is in, as a general concept is a very useful thing. But it kind of reminds me of Do you remember when? It was like 10 years or so ago when like, you know, so an enterprise service bus was like, that's how we were going to do everything. And yeah. Like, and like JMS and all that stuff. Yeah. And, and yeah, and like I said, I don't want to blame messaging too much because like, you know, JMS and, and um, the equivalent things from other, I mean, those, those are still generally super useful yeah. things, Good patterns. but, but the, the, the SOA as you know, the big enterprise. So, and so now when we, now when people talk about SOA, they're talking about, a totally different thing. I mean, basically, they're talking about microservices, mm-hmm. whereas ten years ago when we talked about so, it was all this huge enterprise stuff and the what I call like the WS Death Star. So it was like you know, remember all the WS specifications because <laughs> you know you had SOAP and because these were things were all mainly SOAP based. But it turns out SOAP was just you know it left so many things undefined and up to different. So we needed we needed um, uh, secu- we needed more security standards, more. Um, uh, like uh, reliable messaging and and all these other sorts of things you had to layer on to yeah. get to get these things to work but, right and, and just it was just kind of a mess right the, there's no silver bullet here right this is just the first step among yeah. many and immediately you have all these questions right how are you going to manage identity how are you going to ma- manage access to different resources and who's allowed to do what um, and then one thing that platform events as it stands today as far as I understand doesn't support is any idea of message filtering. Right, like I'm gonna uh, that a message has these properties, and I'm gonna register to only listen to messages with the following properties. Right, mm-hmm. so you have an underscore underscore e, which is your event, with has, which has a specific structure, and you can either listen or not to that entire set. Right, you can't say only give me okay. the events that are a certain flavor. Um, you have to just make a different event object if you want to listen to something else. There's a whole bunch of like filtering and like topic kind of stuff, and and. That's been solved on other platforms, right? Like JMS and other providers, like when they build implementations, they allow you to do some interesting, like kind of wildcard filters and topics and message structure and that kind of stuff, right? But um, this stuff's been solved before elsewhere successfully. Um, but they're, they're, I mean, it's just an early first step, but it yeah. feels like it's in the right direction. No, I, I agree. Yeah. It's, I think it'll be nice for 
lot of things. And it's, I mean, is there, a, you know, if they're going to be charging for this or no one knows? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think that some of it probably would just be baked in because yeah. they want people to use it and some right. of it won't be. Yeah. Hard to predict. It. Right. Well, so you did a session on I did. App Exchange and demystifying the yeah. App Exchange. Yeah. So that was really interesting. I, I kind of caught the tail end. It was it was you and another, um, I guess, CEO of a of an app exchange product company that so you guys kind of just talked about your your journey from you know. Yeah. So um, there was interest in having some folks kind of. Uh, it's a bit of a talk story, right? Like here's just um, a little story about what our history is and how we got here. And specifically, it was about folks that had been developers and then moved into more of a leadership role. They had become you know product. Uh, builders or CEOs of, of types of groups. And specifically, this session was about people that were developers and then became ISVs. Uh, so she and I, Geetha, we're both, um, we're both CEOs of product companies now, right? So you know, our history was that uh, we've been kind of consultants on Salesforce for a long time, almost 10 years. Um, and prior to that, we were doing IoT, embedded machine hardware stuff. Um, and then, you know, people kind of our model was we were really pretty talented and, and like solving, solving hard problems and people would just bring us problems to solve. Yeah. And we didn't really market ourselves at all. It's just like, hey, people would found out like who, who does hard stuff? It was us and they, they bring us stuff. Um, so we did IoT and embedded devices and then we started doing Salesforce work. People kept saying, hey, I got this Salesforce thing. Do you understand what Apex is? Well, yeah, we'll take a look at it. Yeah. Um, but so it was kind of a, a session about what's, what's, what's that journey look like? And so... You know, we were devs for a long time doing all kind of consulting. And one of the things that people kept bringing to us when you're talking hard problems, then often integrations comes up, right? So building all these integrations over and over the and problem over. Problem that never goes away. That never goes away, <laughs> right? And uh, I just saw one of these, you know, Forrester Gartner studies. It's it's still like the, you know, on the CIO's, you know, top concerns going or, or, or areas where they're going to planning to spend the most money. I think it's like the second highest bucket is uh, integration. Yeah, just to this day. Still. It, I mean, it's just the way the the modern enterprise space exists, right? It's a connect the dots exercise. It's like, I've got all these tools, and how do I get them to talk to each other? Um, so you know, integration's definitely hot, um, but also super challenging. It's just a, a complex space to solve anything. Um, so you know, as developers, kind of building stuff, we were frustrated with what was out there, right? We, if you're not going to use a middleware provider that you like, that does a good job, that's the right price. Uh, you didn't have a lot of options, right? There wasn't like a framework or some sort of library that we could pull in to be the beginning of a custom kind of Apex-oriented integration, Salesforce-centric, right? I, I, Salesforce is my hub, and I'm going to connect to other systems and, and you know build a little ecosystem for my business. Um, so we, we got kind of just really frustrated because we kept rebuilding it from scratch for different customers, and we thought there needs to be a framework or something. Yeah. Um, so sort of our journey was that last year, um, we decided we we're going to build a product that we had previously been a consultancy for years and just a team of, de- of developers helping people out, kind of solving tough problems. And we were going to change kind of our DNA and become a product company. So we set out on this ISV journey and registered and sort of shifted our focus uh, and got into the, the first cohort of the Salesforce incubator. We were in San Francisco for five months this winter uh, working out of the Heroku building. Uh, so our team came here. I moved here to San Francisco. Cool building, by the way. Really cool nice, building. Very nice offices, right? Yeah, it is an awesome spot and uh, super interesting access to to folks. We got a lot of talks from internal executives and developers and architects um, came down and, and engaged because there's a lot of uh, support for it, right? Internally at Salesforce, we're like, hey, this is important to us. We want to engage more with the community. So we're going to bring in companies and kind of nurture them and, and help them to succeed. So we, we built this product um, and we said, hey, okay, so what do we need? What do people need when they're doing integrations on the, on the, on the platform? And 
We said, okay, well, there's some obvious stuff. Uh, error handling. I want to know what errors happen. I want to handle them gracefully. I want delta sync. I want to be able to grab only the most recent records. Uh, I want to be able to define as an admin with some sort of you know WYSIWYG type interface, what are my connections? You know, What systems are involved and what mappings on which tables am I, what am I going to move? And then, well, we need to support some basic transformations and be able to preserve, for example, relationships, right? So I've got my external system and they use integers to connect a hierarchy of records or t- records across tables. And those are the foreign keys. And you want to import those into Salesforce. Well, you have to kind of do a funny dance where you're trying to either inject Salesforce IDs into the records before you bring them in to represent the parent-child relationship, or you're doing something like certain ways to do it as you bring them in with data loader and stuff. So um, there's all sort of contortions that you have to do with integrations on the platform. And we thought, let's solve as much of this as we can with anything that's a no-brainer answer. Like, mm-hmm. do you want this? Of course I do. Yeah. And anything that wasn't a no-brainer, that there was actually a legitimate path either way, like, oh, there's a, different reasons I'd want to do this or not, we said, let's defer, let's punt. We're not making a turnkey solution here. We're making a 90% done solution where you do the unique bit at the end yourself. Um, and we don't want to paint anybody into a corner. That was our philosophy. Because that's that's a mistake that uh, that other systems have made. Well, right? that that was why we had to keep building them from scratch. Because we look at it was not like we always wanted to reinvent the wheel. It's that we look at something and go, oh, like this looks good. Oh, it can't do this one thing. Or they made a decision to, to arrange something this way and doesn't fit our circumstances. And now we can't use the product at all because it's so inflexible. Um, so we wanted to let people extend it. And by extend, I mean developers. We want people to write code to extend the framework mm-hmm. and do interesting things and complex things with it, but then pull that code back in and let an admin configure it and be in control of it, right? Yeah. So know when it's going to run, decide when it's going to run, and and configure any settings that it has. Um, so that's, that's what we built. Yeah. And it's called Valence. Valence. Live on the App Exchange in May. It's been a really interesting journey. Um, it was alive in May. So yeah, it, so it was, a, it was a soft launch, right? We were doing okay. a soft launch. Uh, we put it up there, and we've been sort of slowly talking about people. Um, we spent probably six months just vetting it, just putting it in front of people in the community, you know, thought leaders and folks just saying, hey, what do you think of this? Yeah. Um, so, you know, Matt Lacey's a good example. He mentioned it on Code Coverage the other day. Yep. Uh, they've been kicking, with, kicking the tires and kind of playing with it, and a few other folks too, just getting a sense of, of how it all fits together. Um, but so, I mean, we're a bunch of developers, and we love developers, and we love building community. And we wanted to build something kind of by us for us. Right, for folks like us that, that have the same problems, that want to try to solve them. Um, so if it's not exactly what people like us need, if it doesn't solve their pain points, and, and they go, yeah, obviously, I've needed this for years, thank you for building it, then we've done something wrong, and I want to tune it and fix it. Right. Um, so we're starting to kind of put it out there, and so far we've gotten some pretty good validation. Right? People say, hey, you, know, you, did, you got this right. Like The architecture's right, these things are right. And they say, hey, this could be better, or th- this should be different, and we're very responsive to that. Right? I, want, I want to have the community shape the roadmap. Now, it's, it's not open source, it's not a, a free product, it's something we're building as a company, mm-hmm. but I really see it as sort of community-driven development. We want it to be the right fit for this group of people that are going to use it. Um, and it's not just for developers, right? One of the things that we learned is that it's really about admins. The admins are the ones with the data headaches. A developer is sort of someone that has to help an admin with a data problem. Yeah. But the admin is the one that says, hey, this is my job every day to get this data where it needs to be. I have to give people reports. I, you know, And then you have executives on top of that that say, hey, I'm trying to run a division and I don't have the data where I need it to be. And it's sort of a, like, why is this so hard on the platform? Right. Or what do I have to, every time something like this comes up, what do I have to get a developer, right? Yeah. Uh, hey, uh, this other system we talked to you changed a little bit. There's some new fields in it. Oh, let's go find the developer. Oh, he left. Yeah. No one knows how this code works anymore. So it runs. It runs 
you know, natively on the Salesforce platform, right? It does, yes. But you can or you could integrate with data sort, you know, data sources or sinks or whatever, or that are not on the platform. Yeah. So, so here's what we've done. It's it's orchestrated in Salesforce. You install it into an org, and you use Lightning interface. We we build a bunch of Lightning components to configure it. Yep. Um, but then you have interfaces we've defined. So global interfaces in a managed package that say, hey, here's what an adapter does. It does stuff like, hey, what tables are available? What fields are available on those tables? Are they strings? Are they numbers? And then you write an Apex class is essentially a, a transformation or translation layer between Salesforce and something else. It could be very specific, right? I've got a custom API in-house that we use, and it it's, does the following things, and I'm going to talk to it. Or it could be kind of agnostic. It could be like a REST adapter that knows how to talk to like patterns of things. Okay. Um, so you, you pair the core framework with an adapter. And then you get communication. So the adapter tells um, the, the the framework tells Valence um, metadata about right this thing. What so, like, what kind of data do you have? You know, like like you said, I mean, it might be there might be three different types of data available, and here's what those three different types of data look like. So we we uh, use the interfaces to define discovery and movement. So you write an adapter, and it says, "Hey, I'm this kind of adapter. I can do inbound. I can do outbound. I can do you know scheduling." Um, and uh, this is the type of system I talk to, and here, here's the schema. And then we say to an admin, hey, here's the schema you can talk to. And admin wires stuff up, and then when they go to, to run the framework, then we do some push-pull with the adapter. We say, hey, you know, Mr. Adapter, um, we'd like to give you 100,000 records. Can you handle that? And the adapter's like, whoa, no, actually I have a 5,000 record limit per batch. Like, okay, let's figure that out. So we, we built scaling right into it where the adapter and the framework negotiate who has the lower limits between Salesforce and between this external system. So we, we batch kind of magically behind the scenes. Um, and so we, we, but I don't care how you build an adapter. Like if, if I'm asking you what tables are available for, to be talked to, that could be baked into your code hard-coded, or it could be a dynamic call to another system to inquire. Yeah, It's up to you. I, I don't care. I didn't want to make the decision for you. Yeah, you don't care. And you don't know, right? There's really... Because it's behind, I don't, it's behind. No. Yeah. Well, that's and it's interesting that that you talked about that kind of community driven. It's really, um, you know, community kind of driven uh, development model, or just it's really it's really um, I think talking to potential customers and people who are interested on how they might need it to work. Because getting so just that notion of like, well, something may not be able to accept that many records, or or just understanding like what how people need to describe what aspects or properties of their data they need to describe to the system. That, that's kind of like the meta model, right? And getting that meta model right um, is something that I think takes, um, you have to either have a ton of experience with integrations, which you probably do, but also <laughs> just talking to people because so many of these things are things that you would just not think of on your own. Yeah. It's like, you know, that you know certain characteristics of, of a data source or, an, or another system or whatever. So that's that's interesting, and I'm sure it's one of those things also that you know you get it as right as you as you can just based on you know. Well, you know, it's exactly that. So I mean, this is a, an inherently a very complex space, yeah. and I get people all the time anecdotally say, "Here's my use case. Here's what I'm trying to do," and I think, "Man, that's really hard." Yeah. <laughs> and I am deliberately not going to solve that for you. But I'm going to do all the meta stuff, all the infrastructure, right? I, it's it's the plumbing. Or, or if they, if you, if the system allows them to solve that problem on their own, right? And this is where I'm, I'm thinking, you know, implementing Valence. I, I would imagine like there's probably a, some things that a developer would do up front to create these adapters, especially if it's like a custom data source or whatever, right? But once the developer's done that, it's tested. Then you, but you've got, you know, just based on what your description, you got these tools that the admin can uh, to use to monitor and see errors and like maybe make some adjustments or whatever. But once those adapters are created, 
you know, the developer can, because the developer's going to move on, right? Yeah. So, so that's, I, I so love that's, that you that's said a nice that. model. I love that you said that because there's, there's another piece to this, which is that, um, so you got these adapters, which are Apex classes, and then we have what we call filters, which is basically they transform records or, or change the data set, and they're Apex classes as well. Okay. Um, both of those and the mappings and the links between tables and the schemas, right, are all custom metadata types, which means they're packageable. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is build a framework that someone could drop into an org and then people could bolt on all kinds of stuff to. So you could develop an adapter in a package and sell it or give it away. Yeah. You could develop an adapter plus transformations plus pre-built linkings. Like, let's say you're... Um, oh, so I could sell an add-on to Valence. That's the idea. Is that we're not going to build adapters. We want to... Has anyone in the App Exchange ecosystem done this, something like that yet? No. Okay. So part of the, the challenge we're having is the App Exchange has no way to have like an ecosystem around an a package very well. So I'm pushing the App Exchange team to like let me tag, like change the so way need, that you tag stuff on the App Exchange. You need your own your own sub marketplace. I do. So what, what we'll do in the interim is we'll index people's adapters, right? You, t you tell us what you've built Built, yeah. And you send us the listing ID, and we'll in, we'll have an index server of all the adapters and filters and stuff. So, but back to the packages, like if you're an expert at something, like you're the uh, you know real estate guy, and you're going to build an MLS adapter, you could pre-build it with like a custom object that holds property information. You know, this number of bedrooms, this number of bathrooms, and the code that knows how to talk to the property server, and link it into like the account table, and make that as one package on the App Exchange. You say, hey, do you have valence? If you have valence, let me install this package. I'm going to sell it to you separately. Yep. And then you know. You're you're good. You're golden. Wow. Yeah, it's it's the beginning of an ecosystem. I'm yep. hoping, right? Yep. And here's our philosophy: we want to change the way people do integrations in Salesforce. If you have a Salesforce centric organization and Salesforce is the hub of a lot of stuff going on, then you're probably having trouble getting data in and out of Salesforce in a meaningful way. So we want to give you a command and control center in your Salesforce org where you can see all this data movement and we track it very granularly. What happened? Where did it go? How did it go? Success, failure, that kind of stuff. So you go to one place to see all the analytics, one place to see all the movement and configure it. Mm -hmm. And then it's sort of infinitely extensible that you can build stuff, we can build stuff, third parties can build stuff, you can just bolt on as you need. Um, and then it's all kind of in one place. And with the analytics, what we do is we, we generate uh, a custom object records when there's data movement so you could tie those into reports or dashboards. You could build triggers off them. You could do all kinds of interesting things with notifications, that kind of stuff, because it's right on the platform. Does, would data storage become an issue with some of that? Would you get, yep. Okay. So um, by default, we allow you to prune it. So we say, okay, you want to track every single record that moves or just errors, errors and warnings, uh, and then what's the decay on that, right? Do you want to hold them for 30 days? Because that's the right model, is that you track everything and then drop it after a while. Right. Because if something policy. broke... And you want to get, like, how often do you, something broke and you have to go fix it, but you, you didn't have your logging on. Yeah. So you have to turn logging on and then try to get it to break again. Which, don't get me started on Salesforce <laughs> logging. <laughs> so so we, you won't be able to track all the errors, but obviously data storage is a problem. So that we say, okay, well, 30 days and then you can toss it or whatever. It's configurable. Yeah. That's cool. I like, I'd, I'd really like that idea of you're creating this, um, your own little uh, marketplace, your own economy. Now, business model wise, how do you make money? Do you do you obviously you know when a, when a, when someone installs Valence, there's probably some fee for that, right? Yeah. So there's um, a, a subscription for Valence. So mm -hmm. we're, we're we're tuning different models because there are different ways to use it, yeah. right? So right now uh, we have sort of a single model, which is that there's a, a managed package and you use a subscription for it. 
And uh, we're actually in the pilot for feature management because we'd like to see if there are different ways to sort of slice and dice it. Right? One of the things we've talked about is sort of, okay, you maybe you have one adapter plus the core package and it's like a light version and that's what you do. Maybe you need to have a bunch of adapters. It was still kind of figuring out what okay. makes sense. Yep. Um, but there are kind of different ways that this gets used, right? So there are OEMs that want, it, want to have it as part of their OEM offering because then they can pull stuff into their OEM yeah. offering. There are, that could actually be a, a decent... Um, it's a pretty yeah, big market. Yeah. And then there are ISVs that want to be able to talk to other ISVs' products on the same platform, right? You install my thing, you install you know, my friend's thing, and I want them to talk to each other, but there's no real good way to have them communicate on the platform, yeah. platform events, yeah. plus like something like Valence to help you orchestrate. Um, and then there are companies that just have something, you know, ancillary to Salesforce that they want to talk to it, right? There are plenty of products out there that, that generate interesting data that doesn't go anywhere today, or it's hard to make it go somewhere. And they go, hey, you know, if I do an valence adapter, it takes me eight hours, 10 hours, 20 hours to build one. And then any of my customers that already have valence and are paying for it, I can just give them the adapter, sell it to them, and now they can get my data in there too. Yeah. So like maybe three or four different markets of people that are going to use it, but it all depends on, is it built well to solve the problem? And is there an ecosystem of people that are that are starting to use it and engage with it? Yeah. What about the what is your your vision on like the third parties that might implement you know their own adapters right to kind of add value to the decision? Um, would they have to sign up with you or can they just do that on their own? So we really want to be hands off as much as we can. We want the community to take it and run with it. So other than our building the base package and charging for it, we're not going to. Uh, charge anybody revenue share or anything to build their own adapters. We're not even going to have any sort of licensing around it, right? If you want to build an adapter, just build it. And you can give it away for free. You could use it in-house. You could sell it. You could build a whole business around your adapter if you yeah. wanted to. Okay. Um, and we would love that, yeah. right? And we So we want to be known for having a fantastic product and excellent support, right? That we want to take care of everyone and build a real ecosystem around this because it's who we are, right? We're tool builders. We're community builders. We're, we're thought leaders. Uh, and we want to bring this to the group and say, hey, use this. Yeah. Um, so, and, and the more third parties you can get creating adapters, that actually just makes the core, the core product more, more valuable to more, more people. Yeah. So it, it's, it's win, win, win across the board. Damn it, Chuck, the, I, I wish I would have had this idea. See, <laughs> just waiting for the right idea. And then I'm going to, you know, so gonna, one of my favorite validations <laughs> that I get from, from kind of well-known people in the industry, and I won't name names, um, is I talk about it and they go, this is a great idea. Yeah. Like, how can I help? Or I wish I, I had been part of this or. Well, because you know the funny thing is, I mean, everyone's had ideas for integrations or whatever, but it's like you know, having having the idea that that fits all the use cases, or is at least um, that's the thing you can't fit all. You the use can't, cases. right? I guess uh, understanding what your limits are and providing those extensibility points, knowing where not to build, yeah. is really hard. Actually, right. no, it is very hard. And it's it's because it's getting all the abstractions right. Yep. And I haven't seen it yet, but I you know, assume you, it sounds like you've, you're onto something good. So that's, yeah. well, that's cool. So, I mean, so that, was, that, was, that was a tangent. Um, anything else <laughs> from TDX that, that you want to wrap up? I, I thought, um, okay, so Apex metadata. Any, any more questions on that for me? No, that's fine. Okay. Because I, I'm, I actually have questions about Apex metadata because I don't, I, don't, I don't fully understand it. It kind of rubs me wrong, but it, tell, me, tell me what you've, okay. you know about it, what you've learned. And, uh, so, you know, historically... If you want to modify certain structural things, and we have done this, right? So part of valence was that we had to make metadata changes to orcs, yep. right? We want to be able to do some pretty interesting things, mm-hmm. um, but like dynamically, right? Dynamically, yeah. and and custom metadata types you can't write to from Apex. Okay. So in order to even like support them from what we're trying to do in a dynamic way, 
we had to use the old like reach around what you guys called yep. <laughs> and uh, and do like the call out and then call back in. Yep. And so we like we generate a remote site setting for you and then we we kind of dial back in to, to publish custom metadata type records to your org. Um, so we were kind of brought in early to, to talk about what Apex metadata would look like and and kind of give our opinion on that. But um they've basically tried to take that exact thing that people have been using, like the library that was out there and bring it in house. It's still kind of a wrapper, right? You're still wrapping around the the metadata API, but it's a, it's more secure and it's right from Apex. Okay. Um, so it's definitely a step in the right direction. It's still early days on it, right? It only supports a couple things. I think layouts and metadata types, but someone will check me on the yeah. Slack channel. Yeah. Um, I know it's limited. Yeah. It's limited and it, it won't be everything like their current plan is that they're not going to support everything on purpose, right? The metadata API supports so many types of things, and they're not. It's always going to be a subset because of security. They're yeah, worried about people sure. being able to manipulate too much, yeah. and, the, and the permissions are different, right? You can access stuff with the, the Apex metadata API um, with a smaller set of permissions than you would need to go to the actual metadata API. Yeah. Um, so that's nice, but it's still got a few wrinkles, right? It shares limits with the metadata API. So, like for example, you can only write ten records at once. I think. Uh, in a single message. So if we're like pushing a lot of MDT records ourselves, we have to batch them up. Um, it's asynchronous. So that can be, it doesn't fit into every workflow that well. You have to kind of dance around it a little bit. Uh, but it's a huge step in the right direction. Um, and it kind of pairs with custom metadata types becoming more more useful. They're still a bit hamstrung. Yeah. Um, but they're starting to be, to be better and better. So I think those together uh, are going to be a pretty powerful way to do setup and config and orgs. Yep. Some the the thing that that you know causes me some concern is if you if you are working on this model where you're you know you're tracking all your metadata and you're making all your changes in you know via sandboxes and you're and you know you're deploying from your Git repository into production. Part of that process is when you deploy from your Git repository into production. Let's say you've um, let's say you've deleted a field as a part of your development process, and when you deploy that to production, your tooling notices oh uh, there's a field in production that's not in the source. So we need to delete that, so it deletes the field in production. Um, it's going to see these metadata types that you've created dynamically in production, and it's going to say, "Oh, those aren't in source code. I need to delete those," and it's going to delete them. And and so the ability for the system to mutate itself in production seems a little antithetical to the "don't do this in production" mentality. It seems antithetical to this idea of mutable, or sorry, immutable infrastructure, which is like where cloud computing is going. It just it just makes kind of engineering sense. So how do I how do we square these two yeah. things? Uh, there's a a missing middle section, right? So I've got source code that produces a, a system. Mm -hmm. And then I've got customers and users that are using the system. They're producing lead records, account records, contact They're generating data and, and using it, right? And you would never think that you know a new account record needs to be pulled back into the source code. Right. Right. Yeah. But there's this like little bit of a weird middle area where some things are a little more permanent than an account record. But they're still kind of configuration. They're still user-generated information. So where do those live? If they're are they in source code or are they a category? It's like I mean, some people call it like seed data. Like you know, like you might have um, uh, you, your system might need like a list of uh, states and a valid zip codes or whatever. Like yeah, you don't delete those if they're not. I mean, they're yeah, you know, but yeah. it's not something that necessarily like your developers building right. right. Maybe you, you have like you know ten different orgs where you're running the same code and they look very different over time because people have done different layouts and different things. There's there's these configurations to each one that are kind of user owned. Yeah, right. They're not developer owned. Yeah. Um, so how do you track those? And so metadata types, or you need a way to say I'm not tracking those. Yeah, one of the two. So right. they split MDTs, right? There's an MDT template, which is like a custom object definition, 
And then there's an MDT record, which is an instance of an MDT, yeah. and they're packaged separately. They're okay. different. Yeah. Um, and they kind of behave differently. So I think that's how they tried to solve that, was split out the actual sort of instances and the blueprint as separate sort of entities. And so I would track the template with my source code, but I would probably never track any of the individual record instances with my source code. Yeah, and that makes total sense. I mean, there's a difference between like, you know, uh, for example, like a, a class and an instance of a class, right? Exactly that. It's a context yeah, that makes sense yeah, to us. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, but on the same side, there's a beauty to that too, which is that there are a few records. So for example, uh, not to come back to valence over and over, but for the filters that we did, right? That yeah. allow you to do transformations. Yeah. We give you two out of the box. So we package two records of that MDT type. Give an example of one. Of them. Uh, so one is key filter. It transforms column names. So if I got first underscore name in one system and I want first name camel case in the other, all it does is just change the keys. Okay. And that's a straight value map. I'm going to copy the value from one field to another field. Yep. Okay. And then the other one is relationship filter, which I talked about a little bit of like sort of carrying those external IDs mm-hmm. and populating a Salesforce lookup field or master detail kind of magically based on some external relationship. Yeah. So we eat our own dog food, right? We built these filters on top of the framework and everyone else has the same access to that stuff that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're global. They'd be so global. They're, they're global okay. filters and they're packaged as two instance records of a filter MDT type. Okay. And then the beauty of the MDTs is we've marked them as accessible to you, but not editable by you. So you can't break them or how they behave. You could choose not to use them. You could add many of your own, and we hope that you do. You could have, have some of instances, instance records of the MDTs in your org. You could install instant records from a package. You could have instance records from like seven different namespaces all living in that table in one org that you've collected from various places. Um, and you can't mutate the ones that you pull in. You can just use them. But yeah. you can write your own to your heart's content. So you get this really nice, they did a good job, actually, of, of being able to compose these layers of metadata types. It's, a, it's really a, if people haven't looked at custom metadata types yet, it's time to start paying attention because yeah. the power of them is infinitely uh, more complex and, and, and able to do interesting things over like just custom settings. Is there, is there still, in your opinion, like a valid use case for you know, the, the just custom settings? No, really? really not. So, so the the one I thought was, you know, I like the one thing I like about you know, the the old school custom settings is that you know you create the 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 type right, the shape of the thing, and then you can later um, with you know data loader or however you want, just manually enter like you know records of that of that type. So you, you, might, you might have a, a custom setting called states, and you know yeah, you can, but you you can load MDTs, right? You can you can load them. They're tools okay. to, to load them in in batches. Maybe maybe I think what I was thinking at the time is their the tooling to get those things in was still very uh, so early. Let me days. take it back. There's one thing that I know of with custom settings that that is an advantage still, which is the hierarchy, right? You can say I'm going to define this at an org level. I'm going to define this at a user oh, level, yeah. and there's like a preferential. I'm going to choose the most specific first. Yep. That's nice, and that doesn't exist in MDTs. Yeah. Okay. So that's. So if you if it's like genuinely actually a setting where a user would have a preference and different to other users, other colleagues, then it's a good fit for that. Okay. But if it's if it's config for an app that's not user specific, yeah, then I would say MDT every time. Yeah. Cool. Um, did you go to the um, meet the developers? I didn't. Okay. But uh, I did go to an event that I want to talk about, which is the Good Day Sir Happy uh, yeah. Hour. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which was great. Yeah, that was what, great. What'd you think? I was just, I mean, I mean, you know, people were asking me how many people are going to show up, and even the when when I got to the place and, and they asked me how many, I'm just like, yeah, I don't know, say four, six, four six, five, six, yeah. something. 
And I, I think there were like 20 people. Yeah, there. we got um, a, quite a turnout. Yeah. So unfortunately, the venue that we were at was <laughs> didn't seem to be able to, to handle us very well. Did, we had to steal chairs from elsewhere. <laughs> we had uh, some wooden chairs, some pink plastic chairs, some bar stools, <laughs> kind of in a little huddle. And then still people just standing around. So, yeah. But no, it was, it was cool. Yeah, so thank you everyone that, that came out to that. Yeah, it was really great was to have fun. the crowd. And then I think we had, you know, these grand ideas that we were then going to split up, go eat, and then we'd all meet back up and keep, you know, bar hopping. And, then, you know, <laughs> we're all like, after we ate, we're like, yeah, I'm kind of tired. I'm full. I don't know. I think I'm going <laughs> to turn in. And then the other thing that I think I probably, would, you know, would have been good for another beer or two, but Slack still had me on, I think, on Central Time. And so it put me in that snooze mode oh, or whatever do it not is. Disturb. And I, so I wasn't getting messages from oh, people no. that were saying, hey, let's go, you know, let's go to McKellar <laughs> now or whatever. I didn't, I didn't get any of those until I got back. To the hotel, and I was like, I'll pop up on Slack and see what's happening. And, and, I, and I saw them all, yeah. but I didn't get notified about any of them. So yeah. sorry about that if you wanted to go back out. I would have, but I just didn't know. Yep. Sorry, guys. Jeremy, but I'm going to fix that tonight. We, I'm going to go get some good beers tonight. It's, yeah. it's, it's happening. Where are you going? <laughs> um, so probably um, there's this place called La, uh, La Trap, which is um, apparently a bar that's got like an excellent selection of uh, Belgian beers. Um, possibly McKellar, um, maybe a couple other places. Scott Willis gave me like you know the lowdown on like the yeah. List he of seemed all the, to have a, a yeah. list of all the places to go. Yeah, exactly. And some of them have you know supposedly good food, and other ones don't have food, but they're near good food places. So I don't know. We'll find food in there somewhere. So yeah, yeah. What are you doing tonight? Uh, well, tonight is the uh, developer user group for the local area, right? Uh, yep. Yeah, Bay Area developer user group. They have like. 2,000 plus members on wow. uh, on Meetup. I mean, not that many attend every meeting. Right. But uh, so th- they're meeting tonight at the Heroku building, and I'm going to go have a little chat. I'm one of the speakers. So we're okay. just going to just kind of, uh, not like a fireside chat, but we're just going to put up some topics, kind of like this, actually, a little bit of retrospective, probably on, on Trailhead and, and how it all went and stuff. And uh, I don't know, probably just a little more talk story, maybe talk about Valence, talk about cool stuff. I, I'm jazzed. Like, yeah. this is an interesting moment to be an architect or developer in the Salesforce space, right? It's like, welcome to the future of like packaging and, you know, deployments and workflows and stuff. Like, I've always loved the architecture of the platform and hated all the workflow stuff around it. And now the workflow has gotten a heck of a lot better. So, yeah. this is a, a nice moment. Yeah, they're, they're definitely um, they're they're making things that should be easy. They're 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 making them easy, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. let's not make the easy things hard. And, it's, and some and Salesforce, you know, there's a lot of things that should be easy that are kind of hard, and they're you know they're they're chipping away at that, and 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 I think a fairly serious way. They're they're definitely putting a lot of resources behind this. Yeah. So. so someone finally said, like, let's do this. Let's yeah. do it right. Yeah. And, you know, it's, Salesforce has been one of those things, you know, I, I can remember just years ago explaining to people who are like Java developers or whatever, you know, how, what it's like and, and how this platform works. And they just look at you like, what are you crazy? Why, you know, and, <laughs> well, it's not like this, these are new or unique or novel or trend setting things, right? It's like these are patterns that are adopted elsewhere, yeah. you know, successfully. And I, and I just want to, I want to lower that crazy factor. Yeah. Know? Like, you know, I'm not so crazy. You know, this is not so crazy. Like, you know, because there's clearly the benefits of the platform, right? Um, there's just been all the <coughs> things that should, should be easier, right? That should be more developer friendly that should allow you to, you know, just engineer your product, your code better. And, and they're, they're, they're working on that. They're taking it seriously. I mean, ever since they announced DX, they, you know, they talked about uh, like kind of the, some of the principles and the goals and the kind of the, the vision of it. Mm-hmm. And I've, you know, I've been saying this whole time. I mean, if, if they're serious about that, then there's going to be a lot of things that they do that just to chip away at, at, at those goals. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, they're, 
marching forward. So I think there's also recognition that it's a journey. Right. A lot of the, the talks are like, hey, this is, you know, V1 of this. Exactly. I mean, just imagine lightning, right? Yeah. It's a much longer journey than I think any of them thought. Yeah. And I think this is going to be a long journey, too. Um, so random aside, while you, say, while you say lightning, one of the things that I found out in the last couple of days is that the new lightning data service has built in CRUD and FLS support. Okay. Which is awesome. Now, this Lightning Data Service is the, it's kind of like, um, I keep saying it, it's like an ORM in, the, in, in, the, in JavaScript, yeah, right? Yeah, like, like a, so a it's, front-end um, one that sit behind Lightning components and hold the data. So that multiple Lightning components can share the service, and it's like one copy of a record, and they can mutate it, and all, you know, eventually like a pub-sub, like know that it was mutated. And then at some point, you know, this, whatever supervising this knows what to send back Right, so know, it kind of holds that relationship. A unit of with work, the it's like kind of the unit of work yeah. pattern. It knows what has been done, and then what needs to be sent back to the server to you know to commit a transaction, yeah, or finalize yeah. the the you know dirty state or whatever. Exactly. Um, so the the data service kind of holds that that uh, record, kind of an active record pattern, right? And yeah. and anybody can kind of talk to it and work with it, and then it can work with the database kind of on its own layer. And then when there are changes, either because another sibling component changed it or because the database changed it, that you can kind of percolate that where it needs to go. And it has built-in security. So built-in support for field-level security and CRUD, which is always a pain for, for ISVs like us because you have to do it by hand in Annually. Apex. Yeah. You know, the old with sharing, without sharing is not enough right. to actually be like a secure request for data or, yeah. or push. Yep. So well, I'm super pumped about that. Yeah. And it, it, uh, it removes a barrier for some folks because if you are a, a web developer and you're shifting into Salesforce or, or you're a framework kind of UI type person, um, and you're interested in Salesforce, and you're learning how to build Lightning components, and you're a JavaScript-focused person, uh, you had to also write Apex controllers. Right. But if, if I actually have a really nice little data layer in my front end that I don't have to build an Apex controller to do you know, database-level transactions, then suddenly you could build a very compelling and interesting experience and, and tool just with the front end, yeah. right? just with JavaScript. Right. So it opens up the platform for a whole new realm of developers that maybe are interested in doing some work there. Yeah, I'm, I'm still um, I'm still a little concerned about things. At some point, that thing's just going directly to the Salesforce kind of CRUD API, and I still like to, uh, and at least in a lot of cases, have like my own API that like a UI would use. That's that's yeah more, for more know, compound operations. Just, yeah, type exactly. Stuff. Uh-huh. There you go. Yeah, like that's a good example. you know, finalize event manipulation type stuff. We like building a banquet. Yeah, or, or save this graph of objects instead of yeah instead of splitting it up or yeah. whatever. And, and so, you, know, you can, I mean, there's just there's there's things that 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 API could implement that you don't want to. Not only do you want to burden the client with, but you can't trust the the client. And I mean, I mean, like the UI or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. You can't trust the UI to do the right thing, you need to enforce that with your API. So don't go directly to my database. Yep. That's, you know, that's rude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I think sort of it's a supplement, right? Yeah. And it can kind of help with things. Yeah. But, uh, it, it, you know, if, if you're previously your controllers were only just wrappers for CRUD, that's great. Yeah. If you had some sort of complex use case, then maybe it, it, only that use case is in the controller and then the basic CRUD is not, right? Yeah. There's some interesting. It gives you some options. Yeah, you still have to be a good software designer, though. Right, can't get around that. No, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> hey, that's yeah. why we have jobs, right? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, that's. I mean, for for our framework, we're like, hey, people are smart, and they're trying to solve a unique use case, and they don't need to solve things that have already been solved for, but we can't totally do their job for them. 
right? We can get them 90% of the way there. So I, I feel like that can be applied all over the place, right? All of these infrastructure things, all these changes, platform events and stuff are helping us stop doing things that have already been solved elsewhere. Stop doing things that don't need to be done by us. And then all I have to do is solve a new problem, yeah. solve a unique circumstance and do just enough coding to solve my unique circumstances and not yep. like all the infrastructure. Now, and I'm not sure this is really a lucrative business, um, but there is a, probably some significant consulting opportunity there too, because some clients will want help implementing their adapters and or with that you know complex. Yeah, so we, we'd like to do a, a bit of that um, just to help like with the framework itself. Uh, but we think that that's probably an opportunity for other groups, right? If you're an SI, you're a consulting group, because um, this is like it's plumbing. You can, send, you can send it to me. I'll help them implement their. Well, adapters. no, that's that's the thing is <laughs> is that. This is just the first step, right? If you can get the pipe in place to move data, well, what is your data for? What are you going to use it for? Which fields do you want to move and why? Like, yeah. are they useful to you? What are you going to use them for? So there's all this like data design that has to happen that you're not getting away from. Right. And we we don't want to be in the data movement design business, yeah. right? We want to help you get the pipe in place because who needs to keep building their own pipe? And then you're going to work with your customers or internally with your stakeholders and figure out what you need to move and where. Yeah. And yeah, that's not for us, that's yeah. for you, and that and that's. I mean, honestly, that's 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 hard. Yeah, that's hard getting that figured out. Because but that's where your value is, right? Like your value oh, sure. is in applying your experience to the problem of why do we care about the data and yeah. not mechanically how do I move the data, yeah. right? So it brings, sure we can move this. Should we be? I mean, yeah. Who needs it? Who's it changes gonna, the whole conversation. Anyone, I mean, how many times have you seen people build integrations and it turns out that whoever they were built for, what are the data you're moving, ends up not even getting consumed, and because that's people didn't ask the right questions. Yeah. Didn't, you didn't really drill down to what's the value of this thing that someone thinks we need to do. Yeah. So that's always hard. You know? Yeah, I, I think that those higher level conversations are really valuable, right? Yeah. And then that's you want to have more of those and less just grunt work, infrastructure hours burned, kind of building stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. Well, any other points or thoughts? Kind of wrap up stuff. Yeah. I would say overall TDX, I really liked it. Yeah, I was impressed. Right, it, pretty technical, a little bit of fluff. But uh, small enough to kind of meet the right people. A lot of introductions, a lot of nice conversations happening in the hallways. Uh, really interesting sessions. Some really cool stuff. I mean, it's a good moment to have a technical conference in Salesforce. There's a lot of stuff happening technically, right? It's not like you know a couple of years ago. Maybe I'm not sure what you might have been excited about at a conference like this, right? Um, so you know, it's a good opportunity to have something like this. So I, I mean, I learned a ton in the last couple of days, and I'm really excited about. The future, like the next year, is going to be super cool. Yeah, I also thought. I mean, I thought they did a, a good job. I mean, Salesforce, you know, there's if there's one thing they do well, it's events, right? Yeah, um, they've got just probably the best events team, you know, in the business. Um, so everything it was run really well. I mean, logistically things worked. I don't recall any major snafus of any type. Ex well, security lines. Yeah, it, it I just, never hit a long one. So this morning, I, I got there at about nine. I think yeah. um, it was wrapped. I think more than halfway around Moscone West, which has got to really? be like a quarter mile. I mean, yeah. it was so they, crazy. For people that weren't there, they had metal detectors, they had some uh, bomb sniffing dogs. They had a lot it of seemed security. overboard. It seemed, I don't know. I, I guess you have to do that. Is that just a thing nowadays? I, I didn't know if there was like a specific threat that was made and they produced that or they just wanted to have more security. I'm curious to see if they'll do that at Dreamforce or if it's just too big. Oh, I think they will. Didn't they, didn't they? Have they done that at Dreamforce before? No metal detectors? I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you don't want someone, you know, doing something stupid in yeah. a, with that many people around. So, um, but I mean, that and that's yeah. And sizing on some of the sessions was still a challenge, right? There, there were sessions that you know yeah. there were seats for twenty, and there were sixty people trying to fit in the room, and yep. 
And that, um, that I, I mean, I missed a few sessions that I really wanted to go to, yeah. either because I couldn't fit in the room or it was one of those open theaters. But I mean, I'm so far back that, well, I'm certainly not sitting down, but I, I can't see and I, I really can't even hear anymore. Yeah. And so, no. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I, you know, I was wondering how they decide which talks to put in which parts of this. Because like, they're very different size rooms or moments for those kinds of talks. They must must be some committee that says, hey, these well, are the, we think these are the popular ones. Yeah, Let's and put they them don't know. It. They just have to take their best guess. Yeah. You know? So I don't, I don't, you know, I don't know. If, or if they could send out like a survey or do a focus group or something and be like, all right, you know, what does the world think that is going to be popular here? And I think just over time, it's one of those things you get an idea of, how, of what percentage of people are in, interested in certain things and, yeah. and you kind of just learn from. But, and again, I don't, we don't we don't know how many people showed up. I don't know if more people showed up than what they thought. You know, they yeah. they, they closed registration a couple of days before the event, saying they were sold out. Now I don't know if that's just a <coughs> they actually sold out, or if that's like, hey, we you know claim victory. You know, sure. look how look how popular we are, and how many people want to come to this. Yeah. But but it was you know it might have been. I mean, it, there just might have been more people than they anticipated. So I don't know, but I mean that those are minor nits, really, right? Yeah. I mean, overall, it was is dude. I mean, that, there was a lot of good content. Um, you said there was some fluff, but um, this is an event that, um, as a developer, um, I, I I will want to come back to this next year. Me too, um, for sure. You know, whereas, whereas Dreamforce, it just it's it's enough not my thing, and it's costly enough that I just you know it's not. I probably I don't know if I'll go to Dreamforce again. Yeah, um, but this event I will be back to next year. Uh, as a community, guys, let's try to get John and Jeremy to do a topic at at TDX next year. Let's yeah. get them both on stage somewhere talking about something. Does do they like it? it I mean, at Dreamforce, do they have like birds of a feather sessions? They do. Okay, so yeah. They, yeah. I mean, if we do a run around the around the podcast, yeah, that'd, that'd be cool. I don't know. We'll see. We'll talk. <laughs> we know some people. We can probably make that happen. Right? Yeah, you could probably ask around. <laughs> All right. Well, is that is this a wrap? I, I think we're winding down. Well, since you're filling in for John, would you like to do the honors? Yeah. So this is uh, Chuck Liddell, CEO <laughs> of Valence, 23x Salesforce certified developer, user group leader of Hawaii, filling in for John Santiago and. That is a wrap. I say to you, good day, sir. <laughs> Very good. You lose. You get nothing. Good day, sir.